Hey, good morning, seminary. Kind of hard for me to believe that someone like me gets an opportunity to speak to some of the brightest minds in the church, and it wasn't an easy thing to figure out what I wanted to tell you if I only had like 15 or 20 minutes. So here's what we're going to do. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do because I'm not sure what you thought we were going to do, turn or click your way to the 28th Psalm. And, and I guess what I want to do is give you something to cling to for some of the things I know are going to happen to you over the course of your ministry. Now, some of you have already been out in the field, and you know that ministry is hands down one of the loneliest occupations on the face of the planet. And there are moments when you're going to need a little help. So think of this Bible study today as a fire extinguisher that you can hang on the walls of your brain, kind of an emergency response kit to get you through some of the tough moments. And believe me, they're coming. And honestly, I'm, I'm not a fatalistic pessimist. I'm not trying to scare anybody away from staying in the ministry. I just happen to know realistically what's going to happen. And I want you to have something to hang on to. I, I want you maybe to remember this talk this morning and maybe use it to help you survive. So here we go. We're going to go to Psalm 28, starting in verse 1. And this year I'm reading my way through the English Standard Version. So that's what I'm using. Now, of course... If I had time, we'd probably go through the whole book of Psalms. Let me just say this. We'd read every last one of them together because Psalms has got to be one of the most useful books for a preacher's personal devotional life. I personally spend a couple of hours in there every morning. And, and it's remarkable how many times the material in Psalms actually mirrors what's going on in my personal life in ministry that very day. And over the last years, I've been reading the book of Psalms as a commentary on our prophetic mission as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And what I'm finding has been nothing short of staggering. But I digress. You've had time to look it up now. Psalm 28, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. I think that one of the most agonizing things about ministry has got to be the silence of God. The first few months of ministry, even the first couple of years, were a pretty magical time for me. Everything that Gene and I touched just seemed to turn to gold. The, the congregation loved us because we were converts to the Adventist church, and they were actually the people who baptized us. So, of course, the whole church is rooting for us, and for a while, we can do nothing wrong. I mean, I preached some of the worst sermons in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, bar none, and those people still loved me. I remember the first time I was allowed up in the pulpit. It was for the 8 a.m. service, probably because the senior pastor could cancel me for the 11 o'clock service if my sermon was really, really bad. I spent days getting ready for that sermon because I really didn't want to mess this up. So I wrote a manuscript, which I still do, by the way, because manuscripts help me shape my thoughts. And if I write out an entire manuscript, I probably won't need it up in the pulpit. But if I don't make that manuscript, I always find myself wishing that I had. So I wrote out this sermon, one of my very first, and I don't even remember the subject. My manuscript stretched from four pages to 10 pages to 15 pages, to 20. By the time I was done, honestly, I had 40 typewritten pages, typewritten because I didn't have a word processor. 
So Sabbath morning, I got up in the platform in front of all the saints and I dropped that manuscript on the pulpit. And honestly, it was so big, this manuscript, that you could hear it hit the pulpit halfway through that church. And this old guy near the front leans over to his wife and loud enough for the whole church to hear in a stage whisper, he says, oh no, he's gonna read the whole thing. <laughs> and I did. I read one page, two pages, five pages, 10 pages. I read all 40 pages. And somehow I was done, well, in about eight and a half minutes. <laughs> And after the service, there was this one old lady who came to the door, shook my hand. Now, she didn't even shake my hand, stuck her finger in my face and said, young man, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. And it probably was. <laughs> and for just a moment, I wondered if I'd missed my calling. And then this other lady approached me, tears in her eyes. And she says, listen, Sean, I, I have no idea what you said up there today, no idea at all. But as you were talking, something happened in my heart and I've decided I'm going to get things right with Jesus. <laughs> i got to tell you, there are churches where a catastrophe like that might be the end of the line because they're never going to forgive you for what you did to them from the pulpit. But fortunately, that wasn't this church. And the senior pastor helped me fix that sermon before 11 o'clock. And believe it or not, they actually let me preach it a second time. Those people rooted for me. And if I wanted to hold evangelistic meetings in that church, they said, yeah, Sean, we'll back you. If I wanted to start small group Bible studies, they said, yes, go for it. If I had a crazy idea in front of the church board, they would actually listen. Because when we did evangelism, people were getting baptized. I was witnessing in those days honest-to-goodness miracles almost every day of my ministry. So I began ministry with this deluded idea that it was always going to be like this because the presence of God in those days was unmistakable you know, in those years when Gene and I got started. Then the senior pastor suddenly went on a trip and he left me in charge of the church. And that's when Mrs. Church, you know, the lady everybody loves, well, she died. And before she died, she asked for an anointing service. So... I did exactly what it said in your minister's manual. I called a few elders, we went to her house, and I figured this was gonna go like everything else, right? Everything's always a miracle, it always goes well, and after all, this is a very godly lady. Here's what happened. My first anointing was my first funeral. And, and I guess in my mid-20s, that was pretty hard to come to grips with. A little while later, I moved away from that district and away from the people who helped me launch my ministry. And I started to get a really painful dose of reality. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say because I wouldn't trade the last three decades for anything. There have been these absolutely brilliant moments with no shortage of miracles. But I did find out that ministry is definitely not roses all the time. And I guess this is the part that I want you to remember, especially if this hasn't happened to you yet. There are moments in ministry when you get a very brief, limited sense of what the prophets must have felt like when they realized God was talking to them. You will have moments when you know there are angels in the room. You're given a Bible study calling for decision. 
there are moments when the divine presence of God is palpable. You can just feel it. There are these unbelievable moments when the Spirit of God sweeps across the whole congregation while you're preaching. You can see it in people's eyes. God is changing people on the spot. And you know as you're speaking, it has nothing to do with you. You're not doing that. And there are these moments where the altar calls are huge and powerful and they get almost uncontrollable. Those are the good moments. And you want to stay in those moments as long as you can. That's what you want to do. You want to stay there and soak up the presence of God. You want to live in that moment because this is the whole reason you signed up for ministry. But then the silence arrives. And believe me, it does. It always comes. And when this happens to you, it's not going to make a lot of sense. Not at first. L let me tell you a story. It, it's pretty much common knowledge in the Adventist church that a few years back something happened to me during an evangelistic meeting in the city of Rome. Now, this campaign was easily one of the biggest highlights of my career. I mean, here I was holding meetings in the city of Rome. Who gets to do this? But in those meetings, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I mean, even the Vatican itself tried to have me thrown out of town. Now, the funny thing is about that, it backfired on them. The Vicar General tried to have us removed from the city of Rome. And it backfired because the media got wind that the Vatican wanted somebody to leave town, and they tracked me down, and they invited me to talk to the whole country on national TV. I got two hours, uh, three shows one-hour interview on television, another half-hour interview on television, and then a half-hour interview on a radio station. One of those stations was this complete Marxist station that hated Christianity, but they hated the Vatican more, so they gave me the time to talk. And by the time that was all over, all that free publicity, we had standing room only in our auditorium for 30 days in a row. 30 days. This is Europe. Evangelism is really hard in Europe. We needed overflow seating for an entire month. We couldn't hold all the people. So on the one hand, this was an amazing meeting. If I had time this morning, I would you know, tell you stories that sound like they come out of the book of Acts. The things that were happening in there were nothing short of miraculous. And this was one of those big ministry highlights, one of those undeniable moments when God is obviously doing something huge. I mean, we're getting kicked out of town and suddenly the national media gets the attention of the whole country. God's obviously involved. And the stuff that happened every night with the people who were coming to those meetings, you couldn't miss the presence of God. But then, about three weeks into the meetings, I suddenly doubled over in pain. It was my, it was my gut. I'd never felt pain like that. And this is more than a decade ago, and my life has never been the same since that happened. Now, I, I know the church has managed to circulate a number of conspiracy theories about what happened to me in the city of Rome, because you know how the saints are. They're, if you don't provide details, they'll fill them in. But the truth is, we don't really know what happened to me. I've got some strong suspicions. Uh, it nearly took me out. I nearly died. I, I, I just can't prove what I think happened, and it doesn't really matter, because people are making decisions in the city of Rome. So who cares what happened to me? After I got home, things got so bad that I had to leave my job, and it is written. I was going 
downhill really fast, and this has not been publicized widely. There were days I was struggling with motor control. I had non-stop pain. I had days where I had trouble forming sentences and words. And after I had a colonoscopy, they discovered I had ulcers all through my intestines. I, I, I even had a little brownout in the emergency room. I managed to flatline for just a few moments, which, as you can imagine, kind of freaked out my wife. She was at the side of the bed trying to force my eyes open, saying, stay with me, stay with me, don't you die. And that was kind of, well, here's the truth. That was irritating me. I don't like having my face touched. This was a bad time. It was game over for me. I was convinced. I had no choice but to step down from my ministry because I wasn't willing to compromise a major Adventist organization while they sat around waiting for me to get better. They had to get a new speaker because I couldn't be that for them anymore. And that's when I suddenly found myself on the outside. I mean, I never left the church. I never joined an offshoot. That's not what I mean by outside. I was just on the outside of full-time ministry. It's all I'd ever done. My family packed up. We moved down to San Diego where a friend had a place we could stay. And I spent really long, painful days wondering when I was going to die. Now, there were a few people who kept contact with me, like Victor, the manager of It Is Written at the time. He works for me at The Voice of Prophecy today. Bill Knott from the Adventist Review, a few others. But for the most part, I spent a lot of days completely alone, wondering why God would let this happen to me. There were brutal tests and medieval medical procedures. I mean, some things about medicine apparently haven't changed since the 1300s. But I'll tell you what was worse than all that the silence. And to make matters worse, some of the saints took it upon themselves to find me and tell me why they thought God was punishing me, and they were sure of what it was. They were kind of like Job's friends, eager to blame me for what was going on. And then I found these rumors on the internet, people saying, oh, we know the real reason Sean had to leave his job, and they said all kinds of awful stuff. Somebody said I had to leave because I'd secretly left my wife, which kind of blew her mind when she found that uh, on the internet. Someone else started spreading the rumor that I had left the Adventist church and quit believing the message. I got, I got to tell you, those were some dark days at the bottom, days when I absolutely failed what I call the Job test. And there was a moment when I actually got angry at God. I'm not saying it's right, but that's absolutely what happened. What, what are you doing to me, God? Where in the world have you gone? I gave you my whole life. I walked away from everything. I lost everything to be your servant, and this is how you pay me back? This is how I'm going to die? Who's going to take care of my kids? Who's going to take care of my wife? Easily, easily, the worst moment of my ministry. And it exposed a lot of weaknesses I guess I didn't realize I had. Now, honestly, I, I don't know how this is going to happen to you. There's, there's a good chance it won't be that dramatic but I promise you it's going to happen. And when God goes quiet suddenly, it's not going to make much sense. You're going to find yourself asking hard questions. You're going to wonder why God only seems to speak to us clearly sometimes. What you and I want is for God to keep up daily contact, to have this assurance that He's always there for you. So why do we have to have the high points and the low points? Why not just level the whole thing out, right, and give me a decent average experience with God every single day? Why do there have to be these peaks and these valleys? Back to Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. 
Let me make just a couple of observations. I'll be done. Number one, take this passage and flip it backwards. Try to look at this from God's perspective, and you kind of see something profound. God should be asking these questions of me because, if I'm really honest, God has experienced far longer silences from me than I ever have from Him. It was us who broke contact in Eden. It was us who canceled the daily rendezvous in the quiet of the evening. It was my sin, my choice to rebel, that drove a wedge of separation between me and the Creator. Isaiah reminds us, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. So God is not responsible for the breakdown in communication. That's what we did. But even then, it wasn't complete. God stationed cherubim at the gates of Eden. It's a proto-sanctuary service. It says in the Bible in Genesis 3, He kept the way to the tree of life. Not barred it, but kept it. And we find out in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62, look it up sometime, that our first parents kept going back to the gates to worship God there. The gap between God's presence and me wasn't created by God. And when there's silence, it's not because God has forgotten His promises or broken His covenant. The silence starts with me. But at the same time, the cries of David in this psalm teach us that God uses that silence to pull us closer. He uses it to teach us to detect His voice under any circumstance. He's training our spiritual ears. The agony of silence draws us back to the gates of Eden. It makes us crave time in the sanctuary, as it says in verse 2. Quite a few years ago, I was sitting in my living room reading my Bible, and I was struggling with why God is silent so often. And I don't know about you, but when I'm reading, I tend to get very focused, and any interruption is kind of annoying. And I was sitting there trying to read in this tiny little apartment we lived in, and the kitchen's basically in the living room. And the compressor on the fridge kept going on and off, on and off, over and over, and it was driving me nuts. And then it dawned on me, if that compressor just ran nonstop all day long, I wouldn't hear it anymore. It would just be a white noise machine. I would tune it out. Maybe that's why God uses silence. If your ministry was miracles all the time, you might start to drown out the voice of the Spirit. And then you might start to lose your sense of just how broken this world is. And that would mean that your ability to pull alongside other broken people and understand them wouldn't be that good. So maybe in some ways it's just better that God doesn't show Himself every waking minute. That's not reality for most people around you. And I might lose sight of Him in spite of His visibility. How else are we going to finally learn to trust Him if every experience is ready-made and predictable? Would we really be running the race with endurance? I mean, does a good father do everything for his child, or does he step back once in a while so the child can learn? You and I are not going to become omniscient when we get into the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. You're not going to know everything when you get there. Faith is a required skill, and ministry is a great place to learn faith. So count on it. The silence is coming, but remember what we read this morning like a fire extinguisher in your mind. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, as we step out into the world in ministry, let us hold on to your hand in real terms. Give us the ability to see clearly the world the way that you see it and love the people that you love. And I ask for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.